and let's pray. Oh, Father, your Holy Spirit says to us today, if we hear your voice, we should not harden our hearts. And so we seek your fresh grace now, uh, that you would help us to heed your word, and that you would encourage us uh, as brothers and sisters to use this time to stir each other up, that we may not have sinful, unbelieving hearts that turn away from you, the living God, but that we would use this day to encourage each other so that we would not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in a poll uh, in 2010, 93% of French people believed that their compatriots grumbled a lot. 93% of French people, this is French people about their own nation, so I'm not making any comments. French people about 93% believed they grumbled a lot. Interestingly, of those surveyed, only 37% believed that they personally complained that much. So there's a bit of a mismatch there. And according to this poll, the older you get, the, the grouchier you get. Funny that. Uh, and men are more likely to moan to get their way than women. And the biggest reason for grumbling, uh, 31% of women said it related to their partners. Well, let's not get too judgmental about the French. They're probably just more honest than us Brits. How much of your conversation is taken up with grumbling? I mean, just think back over the past week. Uh, how much of your conversation was about grumbling about your spouse, your children, uh, your work colleagues, uh, financial stress, um, feeling overlooked? We know there's a, a kind of biological connection between mouth and stomach, but the Bible says there's a, a spiritual connection between the mouth and and the heart. Jesus said, um, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See, the words from our mouth actually reveal the spiritual state of our hearts, which is why kind of grumbling is quite a significant thing that we should be aware of. And we see this in the book of Exodus today. Um, three significant moments of stress for God's people as they journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land. And these are not minor issues, um, and this is fundamental. Water to drink, food to eat, without these things we will die. The bitter waters of Marah, at the end of chapter 15, the cry of food in the desert of sin, in chapter 16, and the water crisis, another water crisis in Rephidim. Now, when the New Testament describes uh, the New Testament experience of the Christian, uh, what it most commonly uses as a reference is the wilderness wanderings of Israel en route to the Promised Land. And that's why these, I think, are such important chapters for us, because this is often where the New Testament puts us. We're in this experience, you know. The Christian is someone who's been rescued out of slavery 
uh, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've experienced the Red Sea crossing of baptism, and now we're on a pilgrimage to the Promised Land and uh, uh, looking forward to eternal life of, of, of eternal relationship and communion with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and so the times that we're living in right now, the Bible says, are kind of like these wilderness wanderings of Israel. And it's always testing to be in the wilderness. One of the great temptations when time is tough is to grumble. You know, how quickly things changed for Israel. I mean, just recall the verses before the section we read, what just happened. They were singing praises to God. They had just watched the defeat of the Egyptian army. They just crossed through the Red Sea on dry land. They saw the Egyptian army that was come to recapture them get absolutely wiped out, and they sang praises to God. And you know what? Within three days, they are grumbling. How did it happen? Well, turn back to 1522. Uh, they are walking through a desert. They're traveling through a desert without finding water. Don't know whether you've been on a long walk on a hot day and you found that you've used up all your water about halfway and it's still, you know, another 10 miles to go. You are desperate for water. And that's just sort of, you know, a few hours. One day, they've not found water in the desert. Two days, they start worrying. Three days, you can imagine, panic is starting to seep in. And then wonderfully, in a distance, they see a pool of water. And it's not a mirage. And they run towards it. You can imagine the excitement. Isn't God good? We needed water. And suddenly, there's a huge pool of water. And then they dive in. And it's, oh, it's awful. They can't drink it. Verse 23 of chapter 15. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Now, how on earth did they get into this mess? Well, was it because their guidance was wrong? No. Again, remember, uh, their guidance was uh, unmistakable. A, a pillar of cloud by day, a, a pillar of fire by night. They simply had to follow. This, this difficulty was one that God guided them to. It is God who leads them to, uh, as thirsty people to bitter waters. It is God who guides them into a wilderness where they worry about what they will eat or drink. Now, it's not always the case. God can lead us to bounty. As we see at the end of chapter 15, he's able to lead them to Elim. Verse 27, look there. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. See, God is fully able to lead us to places of plenty and refreshment and rest as he does, you know, in Elam. You know, every tribe's got its own spring, enough to quench all their thirst. Now, what does this section of, of Exodus 15 teach us? Well, it teaches us that God is as much present in our hardships and our difficulties as he is when life is going great. Now, we find that very hard to believe, don't we? We find it very hard to understand and accept. Uh, when times are tough, we are tempted to say, as the Israelites did in, in chapter 17, verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? But here's the point. God leads them there. He leads us into difficult circumstances 
because he wants to do us good, real good, and for us to know him better. And I want to just pick out three things uh, this morning. The first thing I want to see from this section is that God is the testing healer. And the reason I say that is in verse uh, 25 of chapter 15. If you look there, chapter 15, verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became uh, sweet. It became drinkable. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them. There he tested them. And he said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God, from time to time, leads us into testing experiences. Uh, God doesn't test us in order that we might fail. The purpose of his testing is to uh, help us to come to know him better and to develop the muscles of our faith in trusting him. And specifically, he wants us to grow in obedience, in obedient faith. Uh, you see the same in, in chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Testing experiences are about helping us to grow in our trust of him. And the evidence that we are is that we obey him. See, it's useless protesting that, well, we have faith in God if we're refusing to be obedient to God's word when times are tough. It's easy to say we're trusting God when we're kind of by the, the, the pools of Siloam, uh, of Elim, and all is well, and we've got plenty of water. The challenge is how will we respond when life is bitter, when we're camped at Mara? And so God intentionally brings them to this bitter place. Now, why? Look back at chapter 15 and verse 26. For I am the Lord who heals you. Now what is God healing in this incident? They're thirsty and he provides. Turning waters of bitterness into waters that satisfy their thirst. It's a wonderful thing, but would you call that healing? How is the Lord their healer in this incident? Well, I think that phrase transforms our understanding of God's dealings with us. See, God's great desire for us, his sinful, messed up people, is to make us whole again. And so that we can fully enjoy him, our creator God. We are so accustomed to our sinfulness that we so often overlook that we are seriously sick in our hearts. What was the sin of Adam? There in the paradise of enjoying an all-satisfying relationship with God. Um, instead of listening to God, he listens to Satan and he disobeys God's voice. Why did Pharaoh and the Egyptians uh, experience the diseases of the plagues? Because of their stubborn disobedience to heed God's voice. 
He kept warning them, warning them, warning them. They stubbornly refused to listen, and they kept disobeying. Now, such is the perverseness of our hearts that even with all the evidence of His love and His power, we still often choose to disobey His words. In growth groups uh, a few weeks ago, we, we examined the words I, I prayed at the beginning from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. There's a warning there to God's people. And I presume it's, it's a genuine warning. Our slavery and our sickness before we came to Christ stemmed from our rebellious disobedience towards God. And you know what? God has saved us from our sins and, 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 and removed them as far as the east is from the west. But you know, he's also committed to ongoingly save us. He is the healer who puts us in testing circumstances so that we grow into wholeness and learn the spiritual health of obedience and trusting him when times are tough, that we would enjoy a soul-satisfying relationship with him. He loves us too much, you see, to leave us in states of unbelief and separation from him. See, we think that the most important thing is that we get materially satisfied. We think our greatest need is water and food. We think our greatest need is for comfort and ease, for satisfying human relationships and perfect health. We think those are our greatest needs, but God is not so superficial. God is not so man-centered. He knows our greatest need is none of the above, but instead the healing of our sinful hearts so that we might enjoy Him. And He's committed to to healing our broken, twisted hearts, even if it means guiding us into places of disappointment or deprivation or discouragement or even despair even, for He is the Lord who heals us. Dr. Larry Crabb dedicated his book, Finding God, to the memory of a man called Dr. Charles Smith, and I quote what he says about him. A mentor who prayed for his cancer to return if it would bring him closer to God. And in the last year, he found God in a measure he had never known before. And then he died of cancer. He is the testing healer. Secondly, he's the gracious provider. Now, I've spent most of the time kind of building on the first point because I think it's the key to understanding this whole section. And if you're in the middle of difficult circumstances, uh, I want us to see how God is the gracious provider in the midst of our difficult circumstances. I mean, they've been wandering through the wilderness for about a month now, and because of lack of food, they start grumbling against Moses and Aaron in chapter 16. Um, and you see, quite quickly, they get an amazing... Uh, rose-tinted nostalgia coming over them in 16 verse 3. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Uh, we are quite capable of delusional thinking as God's people. I mean, they'd had very selective memories, hadn't they? 
They had a miserable time in Egypt. They were slaves. They were being told to throw their babies into the River Nile. But hey, do you remember the meat buffets? Weren't they great? Yeah, we were slaves, but what great barbecue. No, it seems incredible, isn't it? That they, after a month, they're, they're longing to be back as slaves. But notice with me that God responds to their grumbling with amazing grace. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. God is the gracious provider. For 40 years, uh, you read at the end of that chapter, um, he sustains his people uh, in the wilderness with manna. Can you imagine the logistics of feeding uh, upward of 2 million Israelites every day? It would require long freight trains. And God did that for his people for over 40 years. The question I want to ask is this. How deeply rooted are our hearts of unbelief? How deeply rooted is, is this problem of unbelief? Well, look at uh, 16 verse 4. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The problem of an unbelieving heart is so deep that God gives them a daily test of obedience in order to teach them the blessings of obedience. 365 days for 40 years, they needed this daily lesson so they could learn that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They're instructed to go out and just gather enough for the day. And if they try to gather more than that, they'd learn the hard way. If you look at verse 20, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. They're thinking about using maggots now for fixing your wounds in hospital, but that's another matter. Uh, you wouldn't want it in your food. God calls on his people day by day to trust his word and to trust his gracious provision. I wonder, have you ever longed to win the lottery? Have you ever dreamed about it? I mean, think what you could do with an extra 20, 30 million quid in the bank account. I mean, you could move out your rented house, pay off your mortgage. Um, leave your miserable job, get the nice car, and of course, you know, you donate some money to the church, of course you would. Um, what are we wishing for as we think about the lottery? We're wishing to be so self-sufficient that we never have to depend on God at all. And God knows that it is far healthier and spiritually beneficial for us to stay trusting. And so Jesus taught us how to pray. He says, give us this day our daily bread. The only day that they were to gather two days worth was the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day that God rested from his work of providing the manna. And so he graciously provides enough the day before uh, so that they can, uh, on the Sabbath, they wouldn't have to go out and work and get their bread. 
How kind for former slaves who are expected to work every single day of the week. God gives them a day off. And here's another beautiful picture of, of enjoying the blessings of God. A, a day of obedience to God's word is a day of resting with God on the Sabbath. And God's provision of manna is, is quite mind-blowing when you think about it. Isn't it all that he kept uh, giving it to them for 40 years? But I think it's even more extraordinary when you think about what he did to fix the bitter waters of Mara. If you turn back to chapter 15, uh, in a sense, God... Look how God turns this one around. God could have said to Moses, you know, well, shake that staff and, and, and it'll become drinkable. But look what he does in chapter 15, verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord, the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now think about this. Long before Moses was even born... God caused a tree to grow next to these bitter waters. A tree that, when thrown into the waters, would make it drinkable again. Uh, such is the, God's grace and provision that even before his people come to this place of testing and, and trial, he'd already made full provision for their situation. A tree was right by the side of this pool. And the only thing they needed to do was to cry out to him in prayer, and he was ready to answer and show them the solution. All these instances of, of God's gracious provision, I think, are pointing us, of course, to the ultimate display of his grace and provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't got time, really, to look at all the ways the New Testament develops this. But uh, we, we heard from John chapter 6 earlier. Uh, a people who received a miraculous meal in a deserted place. Oh, that sounds familiar. They come back to Jesus looking for another meal the next day. And in John chapter 6, uh, the, the crowds ask Jesus for a sign, even after he's just fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never go thirsty. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But the, here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Forty years of miraculous bread from heaven to prepare us. For Jesus, the bread of life given by God from heaven to us. In offering himself as a sacrifice upon the cross, he bears our sin. He offers forgiveness and eternal life so that all the bitterness of our life can know sweet transformation and all satisfying soul quenching Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this all. All of this is written down for us to point us to him. See, these, these chapters reveal God to us as, as the testing healer, but also as the gracious provider. In whatever trials you're going through right now, look to Jesus. 
He has sent His one only Son. He offers Himself to you in His Son. Everything you need is in Jesus. Look to Him in your trial right now. He is the gracious provider. He's provided all that we need in Him. And so when we find difficult times, the choice that we face is always the same. Will we test God or trust God? See, in chapter 17, we, we, um, we, we find this laid out for us. You know, in, in, these, in this whole section that Diana read to us, there are ten references to grumbling and three to quarreling. And there's another experience of water running out, and the people grumble and they quarrel against their leader, Moses. But Moses makes it very clear what's really going on. If you look at chapter 17 and verse 2, Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Instead of trusting God, they're testing God. They've put God in in the dock. They've put God on probation, putting God on notice, withholding their trust until he gives them further evidence. Testing God, or as uh, some of the older translations put it, tempting God is deeply sinful. How will we react to the testing experiences that we are facing in, in, in our present experiences, the times of heat and challenge reveal the spiritual state of our hearts. I think back about some of the challenges I've faced in my life, and I, and I look with shame how feebly I responded at times. Because when the pressure comes, it reveals our hearts, doesn't it? Grumbling, complaining, quarreling. If that is characterizing our speech right now, do you know who you're discontented with? It's with God. Well, we seldom say it out loud. We, we might be a bit embarrassed to say it out loud, but the, as the text says, we'll, we'll find other people to take out our frustration on, often other church leaders. But if our speech is often turning to bitterness and complaint, then beware. Because our grumbling is a statement of where our heart is with regard to God. And so how will we respond in our struggles? Will we complain and grumble or will we obey and grow? Will we test Him or will we trust Him? And let me tell you, The Bible promises us whenever we put our trust in him, he will never put us to shame. Look at the extraordinary way he provides water for the people in chapter 17. Moses was instructed to strike a rock that causes streams of water to flow sufficient for all the Israelites and their animals. Must have been a river coming out of this rock. And the Apostle Paul sees... Jesus Christ foreshadowed in the surprising reference that you get in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He speaks of this generation as those who all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ, it says. The rock was Christ. Now, where did did Paul get this from? We'll have a closer look at chapter 17 and verse 6. This is what God says. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock 
and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Now this is remarkable because God is identifying himself with the rock. He tells Moses that he'll stand in front of the rock and then he tells Moses to strike the rock for thirst-quenching waters to flow. And in a symbolic way, what is Moses striking as he strikes the rock? He's striking God. And it is the God who is struck that is the source of blessing for the people of God. Now, this makes sense, isn't it, when you consider what God says about his suffering servant. Stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds you are healed. I am the Lord who heals you. And so this week, will we complain and grumble? Or will we obey and grow? Will we test him? Or will we trust him? Are we going to depend on our feeble resources this week? Or will we depend wholeheartedly upon Jesus Christ? Can I ask you just to bow your heads and have a, a moment of quietness and reflective prayer? And then I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us, a prayer for daily dependence. Let's pray together. Prayers on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Well, let's stand, Christians, and uh, let's proclaim what we believe.